Greetings, and indeed, salutations. Welcome to the Silence is Golden podcast, your home for discussion, analysis, and general geekery about silent film. I'm Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. And Bryce, tonight we are talking about the classic 1925 drama and early horror, The Phantom of the Opera. Oh, I love the music from that. Wrong production. Oh, sorry. But indeed, it is it is uh, based on the same source material. It is this uh, film is based on uh, the classic novel, The Phantom of the Opera, from which sprung both this classic film and subsequent films, as well as the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. So that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, just just a little bit different. Uh, certainly, though, that it highlights, of course, the uh, the irony of doing a silent film uh, about an opera house. Yeah, I found that a little interesting. Yeah, well, it, it it does touch it does touch on something that we haven't touched on, which of course is that silent films weren't really silent. M- music always accompanied them uh, when they were were shown. Uh, and for some of the films, we have the original scores that were played with them, uh, that were performed in the theaters. We do not have that for this particular film. Uh, really? You will find uh, there was an original score. We know it existed. We don't. We don't have a copy of it. But f- music, uh, music is almost always performed when, uh, when you see any recording. I would just like, if to be honest, any silent film. Mo- most of the time, if you see, if you watch a silent film today, it has some score over it, and that's not an accident, or just a nod to modern sensibilities. That's a reflection of the reality. Some kind of music would have been performed with it. Uh, and so the, the, the irony of, the, of a silent film about an opera house is, is a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, it is in fact uh, it is in fact uh, a film it is in fact a film that had music, just not part of the recording. <laughs> uh, but this was a well to give some background to the film here. It was directed by Rupert Julian, and of course, stars the famous Lon Chaney in the titular role as the Phantom. Uh, additional cast included Mary Ph- uh, Philbin as Christine Daae, Norman Carey played the Vicomte Roll de Chagny, which rounds out the big three of the characters people know, of course, from the musical. Uh, additional characters, uh, additional acting talent included Arthur Edmund Ca- uh, Carey, Gibson Gowland, John St. Pauli, uh, Sneets Edwards, and Virginia Pearson. The plot follows broadly what people know, of course, from the musical, but it sits somewhere between the original plot of the book and the plot adapted for the screen, uh, for the stage. Yeah, the um, if you get to the masquerade scene and don't start seeing masquerade in your head, uh, you know... You clearly are not a big enough movie fan. <laughs> exactly, uh, and like and watching and watching it, you certainly see the ma- major notes of the musical coming alive from the from the uh, from the film. But the f- film itself is a deeply troubled production. The fact that we ended up with a classic is nothing short of impressive. Rupert Julian is listed as the director, uh, and I say listed as the director. Because the final product went through massive editing between them. First of all, uh, on set, Rupert Ju- Julian and the actual cast from Lon Chaney on down 
disagreed about almost everything. Uh, he was he was seen as something of a golden child for keeping a previous film under budget. And after coming in to take over a project, his talent was seen by everyone on this project as mediocre. Uh, the uh, for example, the fa there's a f the famous scene of the chandelier, uh, which exists both in the play and in the book, and of course in the movie. Uh, he wanted it to cut to black when the chandelier fell, and the uh, one of the uh, the director of photography was like, "No, that is not how we're going to do this," and he ignored him and filmed it differently. <laughs> uh, the final ending of the film underwent multiple rewrites. Uh, and to a point that the first version of, that was shown to an audience, to a testing audience, was uh, deemed overly melodramatic, and they wanted more comedy in it. And the studio didn't really like the in, the initial ending. They wanted a uh, they uh, which had ended up becoming after originally a mob kills him, and then the second one, and there's a redemptive kiss, if some, uh, and then the mo uh, mob finds the body of the Phantom, something more like the finale of the play, in fact. Uh, Theatergoers did not like that, so that got cut. A new a new version with more, com more comedic stories and an additional romantic stories, a little bit swashbuckly, with uh, two characters fighting for Christine, who one of whom was not the Phantom, another another rival. It seems like that's getting a bit complicated. It did, and audiences hated it, and they literally booed it off the screen. So they had to do yet another complete re where they junked a lot of the stuff they added in, went back to more of what they had at the beginning, uh, went back to the original ending with the mob uh, that we do get in this film, and finally ended up with a film that was a classic. <laughs> but uh, it was a near-run thing. Uh, so this was a very this was a very troubled production, but of course one of the things that took it from troubled production to instant classic is of course Lon Chaney's bringing to life of the Phantom itself. This movie, coupled with his previous film, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, is what established his reputation as the man with a thousand faces. He had been allowed to do his own makeup in Hunchback of Notre Dame, and on the uh, and uh, on the basis of that success, they let him do it for Phantom. To the point that after this point, that just becomes something he's known for and it's expected of any film he's in. And for those of y'all out there who don't know this, that nickname is, is actually a really, a nickname that really does stick with Lon Chaney. Um, in fact, they made a biopic of him starring James Cagney, another great actor, um, playing Lon Chaney Sr., um, called The Man with a Thousand Faces. Uh, it's actually quite good. I highly recommend it. Yeah, very much so. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it'll it'll grace Turner Classic Movies from time to time. Uh, but it was uh, he f truly transformed his face to become the iconic Phantom. There's the famous mask reveal scene, uh, where you first see his deformed face, and they talk about before you see his face, they talk about that he has no nose, and Long Chaney in an age without CGI, because like Voldemort. And the Harry Potter movies has no nose. That's completely done through CGI. Lon Chaney makes his face have no nose through just his skill as a makeup artist. He used hooks to pull his nose back. He used a little bit of, of I don't call exactly what it is, but he hit it with some makeup, the actual hooks on his face, 
and then hooked them through his nose to raise his nose up so it was kind of like a pig nose. Uh, and this part did put cause him physical pain. He would actually repeatedly uh, just start to bleed from doing this. He uh, stuffed his cheeks to give them a more, to raise them up. He used black eyeliner around the eyes to make them sunken while giving some white below them to, uh, again, heighten the effect of a skull. Uh, so this was a truly def deformed face he was able to create, and they kept it secret. Uh, they, it was not on any promotional material. So when audiences first saw that appearance, that was genuine, and the audiences, you know, women swooned and people screamed, and it was the it was an instant iconic movie moment. And uh, and I I made this plug last episode with Metropolis, where I um, if you. Uh, are enjoying the show and you want to see, uh, yeah, hopefully, um, uh, we didn't mention at the top of the show, but I have a YouTube channel, uh, and there is a trailer for our podcast here on my YouTube channel where I use different famous clips from the movies that we're talking about, and I use the reveal shot, um, of the Phantom, and, uh, again, yeah, it's terrifying, it's a shock when you see it, because he has deformed his face so much to, for this role, it's a commitment to craft that is uh, rarely seen and th those we see it from we think they are insane <laughs> <laughs> very uh, very true and this uh, and that really does bring the film to life uh, this is also we've I believe we've, we've seen it here and we saw it in Battleship Potemkin uh, briefly uh, we often think of the silent era and this whole era of being black and white obvious reasons but tinted films were uh tinted film techniques were common particularly in the silent film era to give a little bit more vibrancy uh, and so that technique was something we also saw in the film to bring uh to bring it to life so that way when the bryce already mentioned the masquerade scene um the phantom of course famously appears as the mask of red death uh and so that scene they use tinting to create the effect of the to create the effect of the party, both in terms of its light and color, but also his specific red costume, uh, stand, which stands out just like the red flag stood out in Battleship Potemkin we talked about a few weeks ago. All right, Bryce, uh, so that's a lot about the background of this film, particularly about Lon Chaney and its troubled production as a film and some techniques going on in it. Why don't you set the stage for us with what actually happens in the film? Right, and, and as you said earlier, the... Um... For those of y'all who have seen the musical, a lot of the plot is going to be pretty familiar. Um, it hits a lot of those beats, and uh, and for those of you who've read the book, it will be pretty familiar as well. Um, but it starts with uh, a shot early in the uh, at the beginning of the movie of being underground, uh, something they do very well, and we'll talk more about this after the summary. Uh, but underground, and you see the phantom kind of filter through the shadows, and someone offers a warning um, about the phantom. And then we go upstairs to the opera house, and two brothers are buying the opera house, and they are told, uh, hey, you might hear something about a phantom, a ghost. Um, good luck. And the, the brothers assume that this is nothing, and... They dismiss it, and they're like, well, look, the attendant in box five 
is not going to laugh when you talk uh, if you don't think the ghosts exist. And so early on, early on, they go. There's a show going on, and they go up to see the attendant in box five, and they ask the attendant, "Who's sitting here?" I don't know. He's a man in a mask, and they walk in, and sure enough, there's a guy in a hat and a cloak, and they can't see his face. They back out and go, "Well, what? Are, is this the Phantom?" I don't know, sir. Surely not. And they go back in, and the Phantom's, and he's gone. So they quickly establish this like someone who knows their the their way in and out around the place um, without have needing to be seen. And the brothers also start to get letters. Uh, Carlotta is their big prima donna. She's the woman who can, uh, who, who's supposed to carry the show. Except the Phantom doesn't like her, and the Phantom, in fact, prefers his own uh, protege, Christine. And he keeps promoting her. Uh, but Christine also has come back into her life. Uh, a lover uh, who wants to marry her as she is hitting the pinnacle thanks to the patronage of the Phantom of her career. Unfortunately, this starts to uh, become dangerous for both Raul, her her lover, uh, as well as for Car- Carlotta. Carlotta is repeatedly warned, um, if you take this role, there'll still be a danger to your career. And they are doing the, sh- sh- uh, the play Faust, which is metaphorically very important, because Christine does not say no to any of these things. Christine, in fact, is agreeing to these things. Uh, it, she's not very reluctant in, to take these opportunities that she's being given. Uh, and at one point even tells Raoul that the Phantom has said that she has to go with him she, he, if she wants her career to hit the success that she wants it to hit, that she needs to choose the Phantom over Raul. And Raul doesn't understand this. Uh, and Carlotta eventually finally defies the Phantom. And what happens to Carlotta? He drops the chandelier on her uh, and kills her. And in that chaos, Christine does go down to the Phantom's uh, lair, which is in tunnels underneath. Um, and it and she sees his face for the first time as the great reveal scene where she takes the mask off Un- unbeknownst to the Phantom she takes the, the mask off and she's horrified but she agrees to do what he says uh, and the Phantom also at this time is making clear that it's not just that his desire for her to be successful because she's his protege he's also in love with her um, and she does not return those affections she may be ambitious as an actress but she does not return his affections and she also actually loves Raul, and so she can't stay away from him. So she writes him a letter, Hey, I want to see you tonight. We're doing the big masquerade ball that we do every year. Uh, come come there and we'll, we'll, we'll find each other. And of course, the Phantom finds out. And this is why he walks into famously with the Mask of Red Death. Uh, and they do use the tinting effect to create the costume. They also use it generally over a lot of costumes in the scene uh, when we're introduced to the scene to create a real sense of vibrancy uh, in that in that moment. Uh, eventually uh, Christine and Raul plot to, she's going to do this one last show, it's going to be her big number, and then they're going to run away. Uh, 
Except the Phantom finds out. And the Phantom decides, hey, we're going, uh, I'm going to kidnap you, and I'm going to force you to love me. And then Raul and, um, and, and his partner um, follow her down, and they try to rescue her, except they get trapped by the Phantom, who has knows these tunnels all like the bag of sand. He set up traps. First, he tries to basically kill them with intense heat. They escape that into a cellar, and he get, makes Christine choose basically either kill him or we just blow up the entire building. And so she reluctantly ter- chooses the option of killing Raul by flooding, and it turns out it's flooding the, um, the chamber, which ironically also has a second effect. It lowers the water in the river that's kind of protected in iso- uh, the Phantom's lair from everything else, and it lowers it uh, low, en- low enough where they... Uh, the angry mob that's up above that is starting to make their way down and trying to find him, they can now wade in in the waters and they manage to get to him and uh, Roel is able to be saved. Uh, the mob uh, chases the phantom out. The phantom kidnaps Christine uh, again and they run away except she, jump, she jumps out of the carriage which causes him to wreck the carriage as he tries to stop and the mob, apparently running at light speed, uh, catches up to the runaway carriage, and they literally beat the phantom to death and throw him in the river. And the end. I do love that ending. One, it's, it's very different. Both, I've, it's been some time since I've read the book, but I believe that is a dis- the mob chasing him through the streets is different from the book, if I recall. It's certainly different, though, from the play where his ending is ambiguous. Uh, but I do love as he is being tracked down the mob and they've cornered him and he seems to clutch a grenade and they all draw back. And then he, with this devilish laugh, reveals he has nothing in his hand and they descend upon him. Oh yeah, this is, that is a wonderful moment because it's... The Phantom is an interesting character um, for his contradictions. He is, he is evil, Maybe evil's too strong a word, but he's not good. He's not a good character. He's not a good person. Um, but he always get he gives people the chance. You know, Roel gets a chance to survive if Christine will do. Like he doesn't necessarily have to kill everyone, but he has no problem when he does. And then you get this great moment where he he takes joy in the terror that he mm-hmm. can cause, as if that's after years and years and years of the facial deformity isolating him, that's the one thing he takes pleasure in is, Behold! And I am terrifying. <laughs> Be terrified. Aha! <laughs> I mean, he went, that's basically his conversation with Christine when she unmasked him. Mm-hmm. Is, you wanted to see it? See it, baby. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> the, but, you know, that's the very debate that they were having while making the film. It was one of the central problems they were having was how do we do this ending? Uh, and they went back and forth between the mob and some kind of more redemptive ending. Um, the They obviously settled ultimately in the mob uh, and had a much, had a, created a much more bad guy. Like, mm-hmm. he's, this is a person who takes pleasure in the in the chaos and torture and torment he's given and control he, he takes over other Which people. lines up with the source material a lot. Yeah, and in many ways this is considered one of the more faithful adaptations of the book itself. 
uh, you mentioned like what Raul and uh, the and uh, the character going with him. The character in the book is known as the Persian. Um, I'm blanking on his character's name in the actual movie. Lado or so something. Lado. I some I believe it's Lado or something. He's the one fact. guy who like knows. Yeah, he's the, the one guy stuff. who knows what's going on. He's the one guy who knows um, the stuff about the Phantom enough to get him down to yeah. the lair. Lado. Lado uh, is the character in the in the movie. Uh, but it's. That that's all actually very similar to what happens in the book, which is a much more convoluted ending with traps and Christine must make this choice. Uh, in the play, obviously, it is much more intimate. It is three. It is the three of them: the Phantom and Christine and Raoul, and he has Raoul by in the noose, and it, it's a choice. It's a choice, an in, immediate choice between between uh, for Christine. There, I will kill him, or you will love me. Uh, in the play, I mean in the movie and in the book, it is much more intricate in terms of, uh, I will blow up the whole opera house, uh, or you can drown him, or any of these things. It's like, he has, there are numerous things, and how much Christine knows in the book, how much what, how much Christine knows about what she's choosing, I think is a little vaguer. But either way, it is a world filled with booby traps, and much more... Uh, much more intricately uh, designed death traps, which, which is much not like a, the play, yeah, the movie. Which is not a shock. It's a gothic novel, but it's a gothic novel that was written as a penny dreadful. So you get the the wonderful mood with the absolute crazy drama that goes with a penny dreadful. Yeah, I, and we did. I didn't touch on the the backstory of the novel. Uh, we uh, went at the beginning, but that's very true about the novel. Uh, the book was the book was written as one of many novels that came out that did not. It was. It's like finding a uh, a, 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 a. It's a diamond in the rough. A diamond. It was. A, it's a diamond in the rough. It's uh the uh the author's name is. Uh, Gaston Leroux, uh, the novel itself is from 1910, but this would be like a, uh, a what's what's his name, uh, something uh, Daniel Steele novel, uh, being a classic of literature for the rest of time. Which I guess who wrote the Notebook? Uh, that kind of is what happened there. Nicholas Sparks. Nicholas Sparks. Would we care about the Notebook if they hadn't made a movie about it that ended up being a romantic a classic of the romantic genre? Probably not, but we do. <laughs> Uh, and in a hundred years' time, we may well remember The Notebook only because they made a very successful and very popular romantic novel. And the same things kind of happened here. The novel was popular in its time. It was it created an iconic character of the gothic genre, but it has staying power because it then got adapted to screen. Uh, successfully. I, successfully. Both in 1925 and multiple times sequently. Uh, Claude Rains would... Perform as in the part, 1943 film. Yeah, part of the Universal Monster uh, films. So it's uh, so this is a film that does survive as a, it is a penny dreadful novel that ended up having widespread, not acclaim but popularity. <laughs> uh, we I do want to touch those while we're touch, touching on the villains to touch on the differences between the three versions because in many ways the fandom has been popular in so many different mediums mm -hmm. as a story that it really has become multiple different stories you have the book itself which is the original one the 
the Mask of Red Death scene, which is so iconic, is very different in the book. Uh, it's told from Christine's perspective. She's hiding from him. It's a party, but it's not like some grand dramatic reveal. He's just there is the Mask of Red Death. Whereas in the movie, we get this scene of him showing up and it causing a sensation and him pronouncing his sentence upon all the people there. Uh, and then, of course, that becomes the iconic masquerade scene. Masquerade! The people on parade! This is not a musical podcast, nor are we here for our singing. We will spare you all of that. But uh, I think I'm quite good. No, wait, no, I don't. So sorry, 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 well, listeners, sorry. Yeah, but so it's a, so this. In many ways, these are you beat each of these three versions: the book, the the silent film, and its and its subsequent iterations, and the play itself. All are kind of different, slight, slightly different versions of the story. But you do see all the beats of the musical starting to emerge here as it's translated into screen from. Uh, the Christine Christina rule in the aftermath of of the fall of the chandelier, which of course happens at the climax of the play, it happens here halfway through the film basically, mm-hmm. and the two of them do do go up to the roof after this of after this terror. Essentially, the play switches around the death of the of the of the of the uh, of the set of the set man uh, verse uh, with Biscay. Uh, with the chandelier, it flips where they two happen in the story. Uh, but in the aftermath of the chandelier dropping here at the halfway point, they go up to the roof, just as at the aftermath of the death of the of the stagehand, uh, they they go up to the roof and they have their declarations of love. And you got to you have to save me from him, Raoul. He'll find us. He'll ki- he'll kill you. Uh, he'll never let us be. And they agree to they agree they make a plan to leave. And the phantom sits there up in the angel statue, overhearing everything. This happens in this music. This beat happens in both. Um, yeah, and so the musical, of course, um, very differently from both the um, the silent film and from the novel. Uh, the Phantom is a romantic character, and I mean that both in the small r as well as the big r mm-hmm. uh, definitions of romantic. That is not at all true here. He is no. unlovable. He is, um, yes, he's terrifying to look at, but whatever sympathy you would have for him due to those circumstances, he destroys that sympathy through the brutal tactics he used toward the people that he encounters. Yeah, and, and it is true, It's tr- and that's true to some degree in both versions, but it's that decision by uh, the, uh, the movie, the people behind this film, took to create intentionally have a non-redemptive ending this ending is going to emphasize the fact that he's a monster as a human being whereas the play has a more ambiguous ending for him and allows him not redemption per se but some but some humanity Mm. at the end which is not allowed to him here it is neither a, neither is a good or right good answer or a right answer. They are both just different answers to the same question of what do we do with this character at the end? Uh, after all, he does terrible things. He kills people. He drops a chandelier on a room full of people uh, to kill one person. Yeah, it's uh, and to, and cause general chaos. Uh, so it's which he succeeds in doing. But it's that's that's really one of the interesting things about this film is that that very conscious choice 
And um, and something else I think is worth talking about in this uh, in relation to this film is a bit of a continuation of something we talked about with Metropolis, and that is um, quality of sets. Yes. Uh, this and, and and this is a lot a, a little different. There's only one big set piece really in this movie, and that is the main opera house stage, uh, which we do see in its entirety in a few shots. But the real accomplishment here, whereas Metropolis was uh, accomplished because of the giant sets that they built to help create the world, this is a much more intimate story. The world building has to be done, therefore, in a lot more intimate settings. And so it's actually the piecing together of small sets so well to create, especially when you get into the underneath the opera house, uh, creating a sense of labyrinth uh, very effectively, uh, which I don't think Nosferatu would have necessarily been able to pull off. I don't think they were doing filmmaking well enough. And to a certain extent, Metropolis uh, was not able to pull this off as they did have uh, the scenes when um, our main character um, was... And now that it's been two weeks since I've had to speak his name, I can't come up with it. Um, but he, when he got trapped by the mad scientist in, uh, in that labyrinth of basement... Uh, tunnels they didn't do a very good job of actually creating that sense of claustrophobia the set work or the the people who created the sets for phantom really accomplished that which is really important because that's actually much more important in this movie than it was in metropolis Mm -hmm. and and it also and that goes into the phantom is a master of the opera house and an illusionist uh and so you see him repeatedly from drawing Christine into the mirror to use of trap doors and all these things. Uh, this sense that all these sets are connected, the sense that this uh, that he is draw that the phantom is drawing them from one world to the other. And as you head down, you know again this sense of gothic claustrophobia going on that these are intimate sets that you really are descending into the depths of the opera house as you go down. So, and that is, that's to their credit. It really is fantastic. And actually, it survived for quite some time uh, as part of Stage 28 at, uh, at the studio. Well, that's cool. I didn't know that. Uh, it, it, fi- it, it finally got torn down uh, in... Let's see here. It finally got torn down in... Well, I don't have the year right in front of me. So, but I, it it, did, it finally got torn down uh, quite recently in the grand scheme of things, uh, and they have preser- uh, they were able to preserve uh, some of the opera house set up to that point, and even after stage twenty eight. Stage twenty eight had to be built with concrete, iron, and iron girders oh, wow. uh, to support the massive set. Hmm. So it really was. This was really great, and that's something we 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 have seen repeatedly. Uh, the improvements as cinema continues to develop during this period of time, mm-hmm. leaps in this kind of technology and skill mm-hmm. in these sets. And, and, and in a way, the set building is related to creating mood here. And I don't think Metropolis necessarily did that. 
Uh, Metropolis did create the sense of a larger world of a, its own reality, but I don't think those sets were there helped create mood very well. Mm-hmm. And I think the sets here on Phantom really do. I, I think, um, and, and this could be a difference between uh, American filmmakers and German filmmakers, uh, where that became something intentional that American filmmakers started to do. Uh, but because uh, they these there's not a huge difference in time here between mm-hmm. Phantom of the Opera and Metropolis. Yeah, I I, I think I will, I'm going to disagree with you. Think a little bit on that. I think the I think the German expressionism that is so prominent in both of the last two films that we've seen, uh, Nosferatu and in uh, Metropolis. Uh, I think the I, part of that is about using the sets to create a mood. Um, I think they did that in I, Nosferatu. I don't think I, they did in Metropolis. I think I just it's not a dark mood. It's mm-hmm. I, I, certain parts of it are, but it's also creating. A very different mood. I don't want to relitigate Metropolis, obviously, but I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think the German expressionism, in fact, one of its key contributions to cinema as a whole, is its use of set to uh, and uh, backdrops to create certain emotional, uh, uh, certain emotional uh, reactions. A film we haven't watched yet, and which inevitably will do eventually, is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari which is perhaps one of the most famous German Expressionist films that effectively use set to create emotional narrative. Well, then I will withdraw my, uh, my, my point and we'll come back, we'll revisit it later after uh, <laughs> Dr. Caligari. If anything, I think you can draw, I think we can draw a line though from that movement to this film. I think uh, you can see that effect uh, in terms of both of its, uh, the grotesqueness of the Phantom, um, the heavily stylized makeup of his that character uh, to the actual sets. I think you can see some influence going on there as what's happening in continental Europe in the Weimar Republic is starting to translate into film across the globe. Uh, and to the credit of that movement. Uh, it, it's hugely influential. That's well, the thing I love about this period is cinema is so international. Uh, and this is before Hollywood, although this is a Hollywood film. This is the first Hollywood film we've looked at. Uh, but this is uh, before Hollywood just dominates everything in Hol- in, uh, in the cinematic world. Uh, today, there's really only a handful of real centers of global cinema. Uh, and the English-speaking world is particularly dominated by one, Hollywood. The In this time that we're talking about, Films from Germany, films from Sweden, films from Russia, all could make their way to the United States just successfully, and vice versa. So this is before Hollywood is going to have its broad dominance over a global cinematic industry. And so that's something I do love about this, is we do see these influences creeping across uh, the Atlantic into Hollywood, not just the other way around. Yeah, I think that's absolutely... uh... Something is definitely uh, very different in the 1920s from today. Um, like the Oscars try and call back to that time with their you know best foreign films, but you know they don't. We don't put those movies in the theater. We see them on, at the Oscars, and you go um, to an art house theater to see them occasionally. Yeah, if you have one, if you're from. I I don't I live in a t- in a s- small city and uh, we don't have one, <laughs> so you know that's uh, 
something not necessarily you're going to have every day. Uh, but it is fascinating to see during not just this movie, obviously, but all the movies, um, the influence and origin, both the influence and the originality caused by the fractured uh, movie landscape you know, those of that time period. Indeed, of our first, uh, and just to comment, this is actually of our first uh, six episodes, which we have, we've plot scheduled out th- through the end of the year. Uh, the uh, This is the only Hollywood film we're going to look at. The next two films, one is once again German, and the other is Swedish. So we're going to go back to Europe uh, for our next two films. Uh, which, I, again, I think is to the credence of the industry as a whole at this time in the artistic form that's emerging. It's a truly international form. Uh, and that's something to some degree I think we've lost in the years since then. Or if, and if nothing else, it's just another thing to geek out about over silent film. Just the cool drawing of influences from around the world. Uh, well, Bryce, we're, we're, we're coming here to the end uh, of our time. Uh, do you have anything final to add? Any final thoughts about Phantom? Uh, I, I, I guess we should just one last time just talk about how awesome Lon Chaney is. Um, Lon Chaney, his son becomes famous similarly for another actor who can do incredible makeup work uh, and uh, not necessarily to the same self-punishing degree that Lon Chaney would do, but Lon Chaney Jr., of course, becomes famous for his uh, for his work as the Wolfman in the Universal Monster films, which the original Wolfman is one of my favorite black-and-white movies. I, you know, take that back. One of my favorite movies. Um, probably top... It's going to be solidly in my top ten. Uh, so Lon Chaney passed on to his son incredible talent, but he himself is an incredible talent. He's having to do it without words... Uh, he has the makeup work in this movie is incredible, um, which uh, again you really have to see the movie to understand that. Uh, but he, if Nosferatu, uh, Count Orlock is one of the most iconic faces from silent films. This is right there with Count Orlock in terms of uh, talent of makeup artistry. Uh, but then on top of that, he's a great actor. He does the facial expressions. Uh, you know, the makeup helps, but it's not what acts. And he, he is. Well, we talked about the scene where he fakes the grenade and that just maniacal laughter as he is, except as he knows he's about to die, but he takes that one last moment of uh, to torment uh, the crowd. The switch between I love you Christine to I'm going to kill everybody now is um, happens so seamlessly that you believe the psychopath that he is playing uh, absolutely and, and this and he is the reason this film is is remembered today uh, that and of course the chaotic work behind the scenes to actually create a final version that people wanted to watch uh, and this, I'm sure, will not be the last time we do Lon, a Lon Chaney film. Uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame is uh, one of his other many great works. Uh, I've already mentioned it once as it combined with this created his reputation, and I'm, I'm sure we will come back to that one one day. Uh, so that's that's going to wrap it up here. Uh, 
Uh, Bryce, where can uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, well, you can find me at uh, jbryceodom.com where you can see uh, both my books as well as link to my YouTube channel. Uh, my YouTube channel is jbryceodom underscore author. You can also follow me on Facebook at jbryceodom as well as Instagram jbryceodom underscore author. Uh, so uh, please follow, uh, please buy my books, and both watch my videos and tune into next week's podcast or uh, two weeks uh, podcast. What are we talking about next time? Next time we're going to be talking about the oldest feature-length animated film uh, still in existence today, uh, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. You can find us, uh, me and us, as a podcast on Twitter at Silence Gold Pod. You can also email us at silenceisgoldenpodcast at gmail.com. For Silence is Golden, I've been Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. And we will see you next time. Uh-huh.